Welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at uh, one of the works uh, by Robert A. Heinlein um, year by year. Uh, and we are currently looking at the, the numerous works published in 1941, specifically Sixth Column. Sixth Column was published in the January, February, and March issues of Astounding Magazine under the, the name Anson McDonald. There are other Heinlein stories in those issues. So these are um, pen name stories. Together, they make a novel. And I talked about some of the issues uh, with the, this book. Essentially, we can talk about the, the book. If you go to the store and buy this now, or you go to Amazon and buy it, or you get an audiobook version, you'll be getting the full, the slightly extended version of this and slightly revised version. I talked about those revisions in the last episode, particularly, I mean, the content's there's not much to talk about in the content that gets added. It's mostly um, filler, I suppose. But the change of language in some parts of the story are quite striking. They, you know, especially on the issue of race. Uh, most prominently is the changing of the word white for American. This novel is set during um, a Pan-Asian uh, invasion of, of the United States. I speculated what that could have meant in the last episode. Um, in my mind, that's kind of like a victorious Japan uh, that kind of would then evolve into a more Pan-Asian culture over time. That, that's kind of what we get because that, that's what's in the air in the 1940s. Uh, in the time Highlands, right in the late 30s, early 40s, Pan-Asianism is there, and it's being conceived of by these major proponents as essentially uh, the, victor, vic the victorious Japanese over the region. Now, what that could have, uh, you know, what what collaborators, you know, like in China, may have thought that meant a little bit different, but they wouldn't, they weren't in the driver's seat for a lot of these conversations. Uh, I suppose they wanted to be. Um, so that's kind of how I see it. But certainly the culture we get in the story is mixed. Japanese, Chinese. We also have some Indian cultures referred to. Uh, Russia's part of this Pan-Asian unity. So you can imagine it's a, it's a multicultural empire. Um, which, you know, that those are common enough in, in world history and they're really interesting to, to study. I wish Heinlein would have gotten into that a little bit more. But anyways, I talked about the racial thing. But the changing of the word white for American is, is actually necessary because obviously America was is multiracial and multicultural and this emphasis on making it whites versus Pan-Asians is kind of grating even like in the standpoint of the time the novel was written but certainly today uh, this was edited in the 50s early 50s I think into a book so he was making those changes back then maybe uh, you know maybe due to criticisms he was facing um, the story basically uh, revolves around a handful of, of U.S. Army officers who survived the onslaught of the Pan-Asianists, and they are able to develop new technologies, which are basically, as I, I kind of complained about this in the last episode too, this technology is 
essentially a big deus ex machina. It allows them to do whatever they want. There's no struggle to get the technology. They kind of just uh, are at the lab and, and are able to sort of inherit this technology. And all they have to do is kind of develop it, expand it, and apply it in various ways. And that's very interesting what's done with it. But there's no struggle to make the technology itself. It's just there sitting on the shelf, essentially. It's like you, you, it's like you find it in a video game. And then the trick is how you use it. And how do they use it? Well, they use it to, they realize that they can't have an overt military resistance that would be crushed. They can't have a political movement that is not allowed, that's illegal. The only thing they'd be allowed to really do under Pan-Asian law in occupied America is, is, uh, is our religion. Because they're granted religious freedom is part. And the second, which is really dumb, but it's it's in the book, so we'll talk about it, is this idea that the that the Pan-Asianists don't have any idea about Western religions. Obviously, Western religions were alive and well in there, or in Asia, I mean. And you had Christianity, you had encounters with Judaism, you had, of course, Islam. Um, in, in There's a whole... Islamic minority in among Han Chinese, for instance. So Islam would have been there. Now, Buddhism was an imported religion. So Asia was not, you know, had world religions. So understanding the idea, the plot device that somehow they don't understand our religion. So we can create a religion however we want and they won't know if it's made up or not is bunk. Obviously, they would have known this is a made up religion. It's preposterous. Um, it's fun, I suppose. They have some fun with this religion, but it is uh, clearly uh, a made-up new religious movement that, that has some other agendas. Now, basically, they worship Mota, and, and they make up this god named Mota. And here it's explained at one point. Um, he's trying to explain it to the Japanese at one point. Um, I forget which character it is. I, I sometimes have trouble keeping these characters straight, especially after I read the book for a while. Um, Ardmord, he's he's the main guy. There's also the guy Calhoun. Calhoun's kind of interesting because he, at the end, sort of like buys into the religion and goes a little nutty at the end for a little kind of action-adventure scene at the end. But uh, what do we have here? Um... I assured him that I did, that our followers were absolutely bound to obey temporal authority in all temporal matters, but that our creed commanded us to worship the true God in our own fashion. Then I gave him a long theological spiel. I told him that all men worship God, and that God had a thousand attributes, each one a mystery. God in his wisdom had seen fit to appear to different races and different attributes, because it was not seemingly for servant and master to worship at the same time. Because of that, the six attributes of Mota, of Sham, of Mens, of Tamar, of Barmak, and of Dis, have been set aside for the white men, just as the Hadley Emperor was an attribute reserved for the race of masters. Okay, so that kind of makes sense. They're, they're trying to create this religion that will appeal and be accepted and allowed by, by the Pan-Asians. So you want a religion that's going to acknowledge their superiority in a way and acknowledge, render under Caesar that which is Caesar. Um, now, it's kind of, I guess you have Baha'i faith, right? Baha'i faith is maybe the closest to what is being described here, where isn't their temple like six different doors, a hexagon, six different doors, and, the, and you can all walk in, uh, and they all reflect different religions. It's the idea that there's God came to earth in different ways to different people. 
I think that's that's in there. So there's already new religious movements that kind of have this idea, and maybe that's what's inspiring Heinlein here a little bit. I still don't know why not use Christianity. Um, I mean, Christianity has the concept of render under Caesar that which is Caesar of of, of like the spiritual realm and the and the secular realm. That's there since the origins, early days of Christianity. So why couldn't the same case have been made? It seemed Christianity was being uh, allowed to be practiced under this kind of pan-Asian's freedom of religion. It would have allowed people to organize into churches. It would have been, and then there's wouldn't have had the theological conflicts that are actually talked about in the story, where you have characters who argue, "Why well, can't really worship this religion because it's it's um, you know it's offensive to my God, you know." It's I, I have to be a true Christian. So there's a few characters and a few discussions along those lines of, of you know, how, how are we going to get people on board the new religion? And, and, and I think that's the heart of the problem here. It's like the, the, the scheme here that they come up with is get a bunch of people into the religion and then flip a switch. At some point and say, actually, this isn't a religion. You're just being organized for a revolt against the Japanese or against the Pan-Asians. Go to war. That, that's really kind of stupid. So this story is a mixed bag uh, in terms of how, to what degree it makes sense. Now, what I uh, do think, Heinlein, why he wants to create a new religion, one reason, relig one reason he wants to create a new religion is he wants to use the magic, right? Because he's got this technology that allows them to have halos, to, to fly, to heal wounds, to transmutate metals, they can create, they have an infinite like money generator. They can create gold to pay their taxes. So they never have to worry about that. Uh, they can get money to the poor to get support. They can literally cure bone, bone breaks and other kinds of injuries. And uh, least of all, they can create that halo that the priests walk around in. Um, for that, you're gonna need a new religion. It wouldn't make much sense to suddenly Catholics could really do this kind of stuff, right? Although that would be kind of cool. See, that's another story. Like, take a, you get a technology that allows the miracles of Christianity to be actually played out, not just symbolic, right? Like, where you say the words over the Eucharist, you actually can literally turn it into the blood of Christ because we have Christ's DNA or something, and, and, and we can transmutate things. That's kind of cool. Uh, what would that mean for, for the faithful, for religion, if you could actually bring people back from the dead or whatever? Um, if all the faith healings and, and spiritual claims could be justified because of technology that that, that could be uh, there's there's I'm sure someone's talked about this, but there's some story ideas in there. So um, the religion, uh, like I said, it's, it's kind of sounds to me like Baha'i faith, but I don't buy it very plausible that this would take off there. Of course, in America are numerous new religious movements throughout its history. Uh, the most important being like the, the LDS movement. I guess that's the largest uh, new religious movement in America. But there have been many, many others uh, successful or not short lived and some more long lived. You have the the Shakers. You have uh, all the UFO cults. You have, of course, the Mormons, as I mentioned, and. You know, you have all the utopian communities. You have the religions that thrived in hippie communes. And you have uh, new religions that come in that sort of for a while become new religious movements. Like Buddhism is is kind of 
almost like an imported religion that becomes its own thing in America. Obviously, the Nation of Islam, although that's another imported religion, it becomes its own thing in the context of, of urban black communities. And it's, it's rather separate from Islam, right? It's almost like a separate branch of, of Islam, shaped by American experiences and African-American experiences in particular. But could any of these pose a, a, th a threat to an occupying army that completely dominated the United States. That, that's where I, I have some doubts about that. So, yeah, Highland's kind of doing a lot here in this 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 book, where he's trying to play with something about religion, about resistance movements, organizing resistance, about, um, you know, and, and he does throw in those conversations about religion because that's somewhat on his mind too, about the morality of like faking a religion for political goals, and then there are some people who can't do that. Um. Is there much more to say about this story? I guess we can get into kind of how it's resolved because I don't think I said too much about it before. Um, essentially, in the final chapters of this book, the final issue, I suppose, um, there is a a crackdown begins. There is the arresting of the priest. The, the Pan-Asians, I should say, are onto them. And they start cracking down, arresting priests. And our main characters get thrown into jail. And there's almost immediately a jailbreak. It it's kind of reminds me of uh, If This Goes On, where you have a main character thrown in jail and then almost instantly a jailbreak. Because, um, you know, our character has to be in action, has to be doing something. Um, but it's exciting. That's kind of episodic in a way. But but Heinlein's used this before and it's not too, too, uh, too fresh at this stage. No one's going to think they're going to stay in jail for very long. No one thinks these characters are really going to be killed off. They're, but while they, while they escape using their magic, um, using their scepters and staffs and things, uh, the crackdown on the larger movement is taking place. And then that's when they decide they need to basically initiate the revolt and fight back. And they do that. And the fight is really one-sided because they're able to distribute this technology to them. And they just kind of wipe out the Pan-Asian forces and... And um, and there's more to the plan, though. It's not it's not just have an uprising and kill the troops. The plan is and here's where it kind of gets into racial politics again. And it's a little bit it's not that bad, but it's a little, eh, you know, it's a little weird the, the way their plan is it's a little convoluted when they have these super weapons. Why not just wipe them all out? But they're like, no, we got a better plan. And the plan is essentially to embarrass the leaders in each occupied town and even to, like, embarrass the emperor of the Pan-Asians, uh, make them lose face, which is somehow supposed to be this secret weapon of, of like, you know, the Asian art of war that can trump any kind of military advantage. Now, face is real in, in Asian cultures, obviously. It's something you learn about when you go do business in Asia and you study there. It's a part of the culture you sometimes have to come to terms with, dealing with family and in workplaces. So the idea of face is, yeah, like you don't want essentially you to avoid public embarrassment is the way. And so if you want to deal with authority, you never want to put them in a position where they have to admit defeat or admit a setback. It's better off for you, maybe someone underneath them to take the blame. They're going to behind closed doors get benefits for that. It's, it's, it's like that. But you don't want to let someone in authority you know, lose their position, right? So it, it, it's just a cultural thing. It's, it's, it's real. I don't know, you know, if, 
if it's the universal skeleton key for unlocking the Asian mind, the way Heinlein seems to think it is here. But that's that's the idea. If we can just sort of humiliate and embarrass and force the emperor to lose face. So they even do this thing where they kill all the guards in the palace. Again, they have this super weapons. So they can kind of do whatever they want. But they don't kill the emperor because they need to, like, basically set him up to lose face so he'll retreat back my point about this is as, as much as it's real i don't think it replaces actual power politics i think there are practical limits to how far this face stuff gets you right it's something that always kind of kind of be worked around and it's not it's it's, it's not going to lead to as uh it's not going to lead to like a it's not more powerful than actual political power on the ground right it's just uh, it's like a, almost about it's at the level of politeness maybe and, and I don't know maybe you disagree with me on about this but my feeling about this is face is kind of overused in this this book because it's kind of an aspect of Asian culture that Heinlein maybe was interested in and wanted to make into a plot device. Um, now there's one little subplot towards the climax of the novel too where one of the priests Calhoun is one of the original soldiers he basically goes nutty and starts to think that he is Mota and takes over at the moment of crisis and then the heroes have to go on a side quest and basically defeat him um and the one asian ally of the of the heroes sacrifices himself um because these weapons can be set to white or asian <laughs> like what they kill or who they paralyze and and so the fact that he was asian meant that this calhoun had to switch the settings and that gave him a that gave him the opportunity to win the battle but he was sacrificed in the process so our one asian hero gets to die, become the, the father of the new American Republic, the, the, the savior after, after all. He's the, he becomes the, like the, little, the Pocahontas of the, of the story, uh, saving, uh, like working for the Americans. So their racist genocide of, of, of all the Asians in the new world is sort of apologized for. But he obviously can't survive because... You know, there's not going to be any Asians in this post-Pan-Asian America, clearly. Um, obviously, there's no Asian Americans of any for him to worry about in the story. Uh, Highline just, uh, yeah, they're not there. Or, or maybe if you thought about them, you'll say, okay, they're all actually spies for the Pan-Asians. You know, whatever. They're, they're not part of the story. So this future America will be, in the original text, basically a white America. Um, adapted, at least not Asians, in the in the in the revised version. So maybe there's some black people there too, but it's still uh, presented at the end as a race war, where the weapons literally can be swapped to killing Asians, to killing whites. Kind of a. Uh, I think that's one reason this book doesn't really hold up. Obviously, um, it's racial politics, but are there interesting things in this story? um oh yeah interesting stuff um you you see like the movement building like who can we trust who can we draw into the movement how can we get them into the movement it is good uh it's almost like you can see he's doing some of the groundwork for the moon is a harsh mistress here because so much of that book is about just the nuts and bolts the grind of building a movement of resistance so i like that i like that he's thinking about that um, I think the use of a religion to do that is fascinating. I don't think a new religion had to be created except as being a device to practice this new tech. Um, 
but but that's good. Um, the characters are all pretty interchangeable and forgettable. I don't uh, have much of a memory of any of them, um, except Calhoun because he kind of becomes a traitor at the end. Um, Ardmord because he's the big guy. Oh, there's there's there's, a, there's the one character who is was like a hobo. He was a scientist. Obviously, he's a Heinlein hero, so he has to be like a scientist, a technocratic guy of some sort. Brilliant, but he becomes a hobo. So this kind of gives him an, an, an eye to the to the roads, which is going to be key in building the movement. So you could tell Heinlein wanted to step a little bit into this question of, of like this mobile America during an occupation where people are being arrested and put in work camps for being vagrants. But there's a it's still kind of you got this Great Depression kind of sense that there's like people moving around the the, the nation. And you have one of our main characters who, although a scientist, found he just much preferred the work of being a hobo. You know, it's a little bit more honest labor, but still a brilliant guy. So he becomes key in the movement building. That's good. Um, yeah, I think the two main flaws of this are are just the, the, the really cliche, old-fashioned, even for the time, use of race it could have been done a lot better there's no reason why you can't have asians invade and take over the united states but to have a weapon that has a like, kill asian setting not instead of a stun setting is doesn't even make sense by the scientific racial science of the time right so that and then yeah there's just enough of cringe on race issues that this doesn't really hold up but that aside i I think that the technological kind of that the technology is given to them rather than something they have to develop or something they have to figure out or it, it's too simple. Um, this allows Highline to spend more time on the movement building itself. But why not make the technology something they have to steal from the Japanese? Then it would have been more equal power. Like, I think that could have been a more interesting story where it was something the Japanese were using and by stealing it. They could sort of turn it on them, but then they're also going to have it. So they're going to have their anti-white rays and the whites will have their anti-Jap rays. Maybe something like that um, could have made for a more exciting climax. I don't know. I, I, who, who really cares, right? Who's going to read this story? I guess some people do, but I, I'm sure it's not on top of anyone's list for, for Heinlein stories to go to. Um, so, is that it? Is that all I need to say about six column? I think so. I think that's all we need to say. This with the previous episode. Um, so we're almost done with the with nineteen forty one. We got a few one off stories to deal with, um, and I guess the first will be by his bootstraps, which is a time travel story, very famous one, where a graduate student is trying to finish off his dissertation in one night, and then his future self walks in, walks into the room. And it deals with like time travel paradoxes and all that. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about that in the next episode of the Robert A. Heinlein um, book club. And then we'll be close to done. I think there's a, maybe, there's a few things that were published in 42 that we've got to deal with too. But I, th I think we're looking at about five or six more short stories before we get to the post-war era and the juveniles. So we're, we're coming up to it and I'm excited for that Um progression it feels like we've been in 1941 for a really really long time and that's just because he still wrote so many stories in this time period and long ones 
but uh but yeah that's it for now anyways let me know what you think about six column if you got something more out of it than than i did um i do find it kind of fascinating and i was kind of more like i was excited to read it um and the cover in the astounding issue looked really fascinating it seemed like there's cool stuff going on i i do like yellow peril stories from this time period i just was kind of disappointed more than i was um excited by by the way this the story actually worked out but there's good stuff here and there in it so um that's gonna be it for now um thanks for listening i will see you next time mm -hmm.